Believer's Dialogue with the Soul by J.C. Philpott, July 19, 1868. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Open God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Psalm 42, verse 11. What a proof it is of the truth and inspiration of the word of God. Did no sooner is the Lord pleased to quicken our souls into spiritual life than we find a Bible to become our companion, counselor, and friend. True, we might possibly before that time, from a sense of duty or out of custom, have read the scriptures, and that diligently we might have been taught them from childhood and committed large portions to memory or even have been able so far to understand them as to speak fluently upon the truths contained in them, and contend for the doctrines of grace against opponents. But though we might have done all this, and much more than this, for who can say how far nature may go? Yet for the most part, how listlessly and languidly was the word of God read by us, how little was its spiritual meaning understood, How much less were the solemn realities revealed in it believed or acted upon. We might not have doubted the inspiration of the Bible. It might have regarded it with a degree of reverence as the word of God. But with all that outward respect, there was no real faith in our heart either to fear the threatenings or to receive the promises. We never obtained through it any well-grounded hope in the mercy of God. We never felt from it any spiritual love to his name or to any truth connected with the person and work of Christ, nor did it ever work in us any humility of mind, brokenness of heart, contrition of spirit, or any obedience to God's will, or create any earnest desire to please him, or solemn fear to offend him, and thus as regard what the word of God was to us, as to any saving or sanctifying effect upon our hearts or upon our lives. It was a perfect blank to us, and we as great a blank to it. But oh, what a change takes place in the soul's feelings towards the word of God when God is pleased to quicken it into divine life. Nor indeed need we wonder why there is such a marked revolution in our feelings towards it. For it is by the power of God's word upon the heart that this wondrous change is effected. Of his own will he beget us with a word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has quickened me. By the same word we are convinced of our sins, for the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. By the power of that word also upon our consciences, we were in due time enabled to believe in the Son of God, for to through his word apply to the heart with a divine power, that faith is raised up to believe in his name. And then it is, as the Lord said to his disciples, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And his spirit and life are the spirit and life of faith. And especially of that faith, which is embraces him, is the son of God. 
For when he is pleased to apply his precious word to the heart, and in the power of that word to manifest himself, faith is raised up to receive his testimony, and thus his word is made spirit and life to the soul. This made Jeremiah say, Your words were found, and I did eat them, and your word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. In a similar way, when the soul is cast down by reason of the many difficulties of the way, that word becomes its support. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. When we are in difficulties or perplexities, that word becomes our counselor. As David found it, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. And again, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the counsel it gives us is good counsel, for it tells us how to act and what to do, bids us cast our care upon the Lord, for he will sustain us, bids us be still and know that he is God, warns us not to fight our own battles, or go forth to meet the enemy in our own strength, but to watch and pray and wait for the Lord to appear. If we are persecuted by our enemies, as David was by Saul, when he was hunted like a partridge upon the mountains, it is by the power and support of that word we get strength to bear their cruel accusations and to stand firm against their attacks. Just made David say, Did almost consume me upon earth, but I forsook not your precepts. If Satan comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord, by the power of his word, lifts up a standard against him. If we slip and start aside from the straight and narrow way, the word comes to restore us. He restores my soul, Psalm 23, verse 3. For it is by believing God's promise of freely forgiven all iniquity, transgression, and sin, that our backslidings are healed, and our souls brought back from bondage, carnality, and death. In fact, it is the power of his word upon our heart that the whole work of grace upon the soul is carried on from first to last. By his promises we are drawn, by its precepts we are guided, by its warnings we are admonished, by its reproofs we are rebuked, by its rod we are chastened, by its support we are upheld, in its light we walk, by its teachings we are made wise, by its revivings are renewed, and by its truth are sanctified, not that the word of God can of itself do all or any of these things in us and for us, but in the hands of the Spirit, who works in and by it, is his effectual instrument. All these gracious operations are carried on in the soul. Now can we say this, or anything similar to this, of any other book? Other books may instruct or amuse, they may feed the intellect, charm the imagination, and cultivate the mind. But what more can they do? I do not mean by this to despise or set aside every other book, but the Bible, for without books society itself as at present constituted could not exist, and to burn every book would be to throw us back into the barbarism of the Middle Ages. Let then books have their place as regards this life, but what can they do for us as regard to the life to come? What can our renowned authors, our choice classics, our learned historians, our great dramatists, 
or eloquent poets do for the soul in seasons of affliction and distress? Can they heal a wounded conscience? Can they put away a sense of God's wrath? Can they restore the joys of salvation when, through guilt and fear, they seem well near gone? Can they support a dying man upon his bed of sickness? Can they take away the sting of death and snatch victory from the grave? How powerless all human writings are in these circumstances. Now here's the blessedness of the word of God, that when everything else fails, it comes to our aid under all circumstances so that we never can sink so low as to get beyond the reach of some promise in the word of truth. We may come, and most probably shall come, to a spot where everything else will fail, give way, but the word of God which forever is settled in heaven, and the word of grace and truth which reaches down to the lowest case, the word of promise upon which the Lord causes a soul to hope, will still turn towards us a friendly smile, it still encourages under all circumstances to call upon the name of the Lord and to hang upon his faithfulness who has said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Thus, under circumstances the most trying to flesh and blood, where nature stands aghast and reason fails, there the word of God will come in as a counselor to drop in friendly advice as a companion to cheer and support the mind by its tender sympathy, and as a friend to speak to the heart with a love and affectionate voice. We need not wonder, then, how the word of God has been prized in all ages by the family of God, for it is written with such infinite wisdom that it meets every case, suits every circumstance, fills up every aching void, and is adapted to every condition of life. In every state, both of body and soul, do thoughts spring up in my mind in connection with my text? What that connection is may perhaps be more evident as I unfold it, but it's not just a wonderful circumstance that if your soul is cast down within you, and your mind disturbed, and you are hoping in God and expecting Him to appear, you have a companion in the Word of God, and that our text assures you that there was one before you walking in the same path, and in whose heart the Spirit of God wrought feelings and desires similar to yours. Let us then see whether as you compare the things that you pass through with the word of truth, you will not find a reflection of your experience and an echo of your voice in the words of the psalmist now before us. We see in them a pathetic colloquy which David carries on with his soul. And that from this colloquy he gathers up hope and encouragement for himself. I shall therefore simply follow the order in which the words present themselves to our view. First, address myself to the consideration of David's stirring inquiry to his soul. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Secondly, I shall consider the encouraging admonition which he addresses to a soul as thus cast down and disturbed, hope in God. Thirdly, the confident expectation which he gathers up in this colloquy that the dark cloud will pass away, and the time come when he shall praise him who was the health of his countenance and his God. First, David's stirring inquiry to a soul. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, 
and why are you disturbed within me? Observed the tender and familiar way in which David converses with his own soul as a tender and sympathizing bosom companion. But how few, speaking comparatively, know that they have a soul which they can thus talk to. Indeed, I may say that it is really a very great discovery when a man discovers for the first time that it is a soul in his breast. The great bulk of mankind may we not indeed say, all who are destitute of divine life do not really and truly know that they have a soul. This may seem harsh doctrine, but at any rate, they act as if they had none. In fact, a man never really and truly discovers that he has a soul until he discovers that there is a God, nor does he ever discover that there is a God until a ray of divine light shines out of the fullness of God into his heart. I do not mean to say that men actually in so many words deny either the existence of the soul or the existence of God, but we must judge men from their actions, and if they act as if they had no soul to be saved or lost, and as if there were no God who would bring them into judgment, we must conclude that they do not believe either in heart, though they may not boldly and positively deny it in lip. But a man never knows really and truly that he has a soul, until there is life put into it, for a dead soul makes no movement in his breast, and is therefore not known to be there. It is like a stillborn child, which gives no sign or movement of life, and therefore is to its mother as if it were not. We need not wonder the child does not cry if it be dead. We need not marvel it does not move a limb if stillborn. How does the child make its existence known but by the cry and the movements of life? Thus, it is in grace. We never know really that we have a soul until it is made alive unto God and cries unto him. Then we begin to find for the first time that we have a soul by the cry of life, and in our soul becomes a manner of the deepest interest to us. For we find that, according to the word of God, it must either be eternally saved or lost. And as we cannot separate enduring happiness or misery from the soul, which is the seat of both, it becomes to us the most important thing that we have ever had to deal with. This brings us into an intimacy and a sympathy with it. Oh, what a tender part of a man his soul is, when God has put life and feeling into it. What a valuable part, in fact, the only valuable part, for it alone can never perish. It alone is the immortal part of man, being then so tender and so valuable, lying so deeply hidden in the breast, and yet ever present and ever ready to speak and be spoken unto an intimate friendship, and a tender sympathy springs up between a man and a soul. Intimate is a friendship between brother and brother, between sister and sister, between friend and friend, and more intimate still between man and wife. But what is the intimacy even of man and wife, the nearest, tenderest of all relationships, compared with the intimacy that a man has with his own soul? How can a man talk to his soul, reason with it, comfort it, chide it, encourage it, remonstrate with it, 
and how the soul can talk again with him, listen to his words, re-echo them, and answer them, how sometimes it will give heed to its counsel, and others obstinately refuse even lawful comfort. As David speaks, my soul refused to be comforted. We need not then wonder that David and his soul talk together, both in our text and elsewhere, nor that he should seek to cheer it up, for if his soul were cast down, he was cast down. The sorrows of his soul were his sorrows, as the joys of his soul were his joys, the pangs of his soul felt were his pangs, and his distress was his distress. And all felt all the more because it touched such a tender and valuable part as a dear friend dwelt in his breast. Not that I mean to separate a man from his soul, as though the soul was one thing, and his consciousness of having a soul was another. Nor shall I plunge into the depths of metaphysics, or bring forth speculative ideas and imaginative notions. I wish to avoid all such vain ideas and foolish speculations, and merely take the broad ground that God takes here, and bring in before us the language of David, for he evidently is set before us in the word of truth, is talking with his soul, and asking it why it is cast down, but following out the analogy, and carrying on the figure, the soul may be considered as answering his question, for if David said, why are you cast down on my soul? We may well conceive the soul may return him some answer, or else there could be no mutual converse or affectionate and sympathizing dialogue between them. Now if we may be allowed to listen to what the soul says, or if I, as an interpreter, may interpret to you its language, we may conceive it speaking thus, I will tell you, David, why I am cast down. For I know that in you I shall have a sympathizing friend. I will not therefore keep back why I am cast down and why I am disturbed, for it will relieve me and help me to comfort you. Number two, I shall therefore, speaking as it were for the soul, endeavor to show various causes why it is often cast down and disturbed, and thus may be able to return some answer to David's anxious inquiry which I will assume is often your own. One thing, says the soul, which cast me down, is guilt upon the conscience. The very idea of being cast down is that of a person thrown down from a high into a low place. Thus the soul had stood in pride and self-righteousness. It had no knowledge of the majesty or holiness of God, or the demands of its righteous law. But the entrance of God's word giving light, and the power of his grace giving life, the holiness of God is seen, and the demands of the law are felt. Now the effect of this is to cast down the soul from its vain, confident, hypocritical, presumptuous security, and nothing casts it down so much as a load of guilt, which is thus laid upon the conscience. I may be addressing myself even now to some individual who at this moment is suffering under distress of conscience, who knows the burden of guilt, and is cast down to the recollection of some sin or sins which he has committed, and the guilt of which he has brought him into much distress and anxiety of mind. 
Now may I not say to such an one, Why are you cast down, O soul? Is there no remedy for you in this cast down state? Has not the Lord Jesus Christ shed his precious blood to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself? Is there not in him a sufficiency? And with him, as the scripture speaks, plenteous redemption. Is there not in his blood an efficacy which cleanses from all sin, and in his righteousness a fulfillment of the law which perfectly justifies? Ah, says the soul, there is. I know there is. On that point I am well satisfied. I do not doubt the efficacy of Christ's blood and righteousness, but what I want to feel is the application of that precious blood, the pardon-speaking voice of the Lord himself, the inward whisper, the sweet testimony, the gracious assurance, and a word from the Lord's own lips that shall heal my guilty conscience and pour oil and wine into my troubled spirit. But let us hear the soul speaking again. For it has other things which cast it down. What casts me down is finding so much sin working in my carnal mind and manifesting itself in my fleshly members to bring forth fruit unto death. Oh, that I could be holy. Walk tenderly in the fear of God. Get the better of besetting sins never be entangled in or overcome by the power of temptation, so that I might live more as becomes a Christian, have more of the life and fear of God in my soul, and find less inward conflict, less opposition, and less evil, with a more abundant measure of the love of God shed abroad in my heart. Well, cast down soul, you are only cast down as most, if not all, of God's people have been in all ages and are at the present time. It is the body of sin and death that we have to carry about with us, the depravity of our fallen nature, the lusts and abominations that lurk and work in our vile imagination. If they go no further, which give us all this trouble, how many are continually sighing and mourning because they have so little of the image of Christ stamped upon them, so little of the holiness of God made conspicuous in them, so little of that blessed sanctification of body, soul, and spirit that we see in the word and strive after, and yet we find so little carried on and carried out in ourselves. But the soul speaks again and says, what cast me down is the temptations of Satan, the hurling in of his fiery darts, the stirring up of every vile abomination in the depths of my wicked nature, so that I seem at times to be worse than the devil himself. Where can the fear of God be in my heart, the life of Christ in my conscience, or the teaching and testimony of the Holy Spirit within? to be so subject to these temptations and to find them so stir up the corruptions of my vile nature. But the soul has yet to speak. Oh, how long have I been praying for a manifestation of Christ? How oh, I have seen one after another delivered from bondage, doubt, and fear. And yet here I am after long years of profession 
much in the same spot. Oh, I do not seem to get one step forward in the things of God, or get on as I see others do. Oh, how my soul longs for a word from the Lord, if it were but one word, one smile, if it were but one faint smile, one turning of the Lord's face toward me, one breaking in of the light of its countenance, one manifestation of its mercy and love to my heart, one drop of his blood upon my conscience, one discovery of him so as to know that he is mine. But as the soul is still free to speak, and can almost say with Elihu, I will speak, that I may be refreshed. We will hear his voice speaking again. I have great troubles in Providence, heavy trials in my family, and much exercised in my business. For all things seem against me, and has cast me down. For I think God is angry with me, and therefore his hand has gone out against me. But let us hear his voice once more, and let us speak for you, lest you should think yourself left out. Do what I will, I cannot be what I would. I try to read the word, but seem neither to understand nor to believe it. I bend my knee before the throne, but have a little access to the throne of grace. I come to hear, and often go away as I came, without any power, life, or feeling under the word to my heart. I talk to the people of God, and hear them speak how the Lord appears for them here and there. But my mouth is silent, for I have nothing to tell them in return. But what is the effect of the soul being in these various ways cast down? Disquiet, for David says, still addressing his soul, And why are you disturbed within me? Oh, the soul says, there is no rest in my bosom. I cannot get that solid peace which I am looking for, and which Christ has promised he will give to his disciples as his own peace, his abiding legacy. But instead of feeling sweet peace, a holy calm of mind, producing submission to the will of God, reconciling me to the path of affliction, bowing my back to every chastening stroke, making me to rejoice even in tribulation, and conforming me to the suffering image of Christ. Instead of this, I find rebellion, restlessness, disquietude, so as rarely to know a moment's solid rest or peace. Someone in this way then an answer to the question, Why are you disturbed within me? We may suppose a soul to say, I have told you the things that cast me down, do they not afford sufficient reason to explain why I am disturbed within me? But, let me now apply this more particularly to your case. Does not all this disquietude teach you that there is no solid rest nor peace except in the Lord? Out of Him, all is disquiet, confusion, restlessness, and uneasiness. Now it is life within which makes us feel all this. And therefore, if you, or any of you, are thus cast down, and your soul is thus disturbed within you, do not you think you are traveling a path unknown to the family of God, or that yours is a solitary case? Depend upon it. 
You have many companions in this road besides the companionship of your own soul. And do you not see that David traveled in the same path before you and that God has left upon record the exercises of his soul that they might encourage others who are similarly dealt with? Why should David have talked a manner over with his soul ages ago? And why should the Holy Spirit have left upon permanent record his conversation with his bosom friend? Why should he have removed the veil, which at the time hung over David's inmost thoughts and feelings, and brought to light his secret communion with his bosom friend, except to cheer, comfort, and encourage those who should afterwards travel by the same path. But secondly, David's encouraging admonition. It is as if he had said, Well, so, you have told me your mournful tale. You have breathed your sorrowful complaints in my ear. I know all that concerns you, for there is not a secret pain which I do not see and feel to you. If you are cast down, so am I. And if you are disturbed, I am disturbed within you. For we are one in life, death, time, and eternity. And yet, also, it is all for your benefit. Listen with me to the word of God, and see if we cannot gather up thence some strength and support. Let me then give you a word of exhortation, that you should not be so cast down or disturbed as to renounce your hope. Satan would gladly, if he could, drive you to the borders of despair. He would soon rob you of every grain of hope and fill you with your own misery. But, O oh my soul, you must not listen to the enemy's subtle temptations, nor even to your own distressing fears. For by so doing you shall rather side with Satan than resist him. If you're cast down, remember this, that to be cast down is not to be cast away. For his own wise purposes, God often allows his people to be cast down. But he never casts them away. Has he not promised, I will never leave you, nor forsake you? Has he not said, I've engraven you on the palms of my hands? Your walls are continually before me. It is expressly declared, the Lord will not cast off his people. Neither will he forsake his inheritance. We may doubt and fear, and even say with David in the very psalm before us, Why do you cast me off, or even plead with him? O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? The Lord still answers, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, or to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. You may be disturbed and have many reasons why sorrow fills your heart. But your very disquietude showed signs of life. Whence comes your cravings after God? Your panting after him. Is it dear after the water brooks? Are not these movements of divine life in your bosom? Thus, your very restlessness like a child's disquietude after its mother in her absence, manifests that you can find no rest except in the bosom of the Lord. Hope then in God. Do not give way to this casting down, as though you were sunk, to rise no more, and be not so disturbed as to give up your hope. 
for that is given you to be your anchor. Sure and steadfast to ride out this storm. Nothing is gone by despondency, but rebellion or self-pity needs the Lord will never approve of or smile upon. Does he not say the Lord is good unto those that wait for him? To the soul that seeks him, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And surely, if it be good to hope, it must be bad to despond. But as according to our exposition the soul told David why it was cast down, so we may in the same way assume David it's given the soul reasons why it should hope. We may thus listen to their secret dialogue, and it seems but fair as we have heard one side of the question that we should also hear the other. Let us then listen as if we heard David now speak. Well, my soul, I've heard your melancholy tale. I know it is all true, for I feel every word of it. But now, listen to me. As I have listened to you, and as you have poured your mournful complaints into my ear, see if I can pour some comforting word into yours. As you have told me that you are so cast down, it's not to be able to rise, and so disturbed, that you can get no rest. Now let me tell you how you may, with God's helps and blessing, stand upon your feet and get rest and peace. I will not set you a hard task to do in your own strength, nor preach you a long sermon on creature ability and the duty of faith. It shall all be summed up in three words. Hope in God. Well, the soul may answer, that is good advice. For I know by experience a little of the cheering sensations of hope, but must there not be some ground of my hope? For at present my eyes are so dim that I can scarcely see any. But David answers, Let me then see for you, O soul. And, like Jethro in the wilderness, to the children of Israel, be to you his eyes. I think I can give you some good ground for you to hope. And this shall be the first one that you are alive. Now consider who made you alive, O cast down soul. And when you were first thrown down from your former standing, were you so cast down in days past? Was sin your burden in times gone by? Was your mind disturbed for lack of the blood of sprinkling, of a revelation of Christ, of a shedding abroad of God's love, of a manifestation of mercy? What then has made you to be disturbed? You were not always so but found pleasure and happiness in the world. Must it not be then because you have life within? And if God gave you life as his own free gift, if he had compassion upon you when you were dead in sin and far from him by wicked works, will he leave you now when? He has taught you to fear his great name and to worship him in spirit and truth. He sees it good you should be cast down. You were getting very proud, O soul. The world had gotten hold of your heart. You were seeking great things for yourself. You were secretly roving away from the Lord. The Lord has sent you these trials and difficulties and allowed these temptations to fall upon you, to bring you down from your state of false security. You were too much lifted up in self. The high tree had to come down. 
that the low tree might be exalted, the grain tree to be dried up, that the dry tree might be made to flourish. Therefore, O soul, you need not wonder that these dispensations should have come upon you in providence or in grace to cast you down. Rather bless us name that you are cast down. For when there is casting down, there will be lifting up. It is a good thing to bear the yoke in one's youth. For if you were never cast down, you will never be exalted. Do not write, therefore, bitter things against yourself, O soul, because you are cast down and disturbed. These are the teachings of God in your conscience. And therefore, hope in God. Besides this, O soul, let me give you another ground of hope. Has not the Lord appeared for you in days past? Can you not remember that signal opening in Providence when you were so exercised? and scarcely knew how manners would be with you. But pray to the Lord in your distress, and he appeared for you in a very conspicuous way. Have you forgotten all that, O soul? And can you not remember when the soul applied some promise to you, when sinking and fainting, and ready to despair, gave you power to look and live, power to believe and find support, so as to receive out of his fullness grace for grace. Then is he not the same God now, as he was then? And has he not given you a sure pledge thereby, that he can do as much and more for you again now? Should not this encourage you to hope? But let me give you another ground on which you may hope. Do you forget, O soul, that the way to heaven is a very straight? A narrow path, too narrow for you to carry your sins in it with you. Do you not know that there is a fire to try every man's religion? Of what sort it is? And can you expect never to go into the furnace in which God has chosen as Zion? If you are to walk in a straight and narrow path, must you meet with no trials and temptations there? If you are to come out of the world and live godly in Christ Jesus, Will not the world persecute and hate you for you to have a different path from that in which the Lord Jesus himself has walked before you? Then hope in God. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward, but cast your anchor boldly within the veil and hope in God. If you will foolishly ever to be looking at your miserable self, and seeking to extract some comfort thence, you will ever be disappointed. Instead then of looking at yourself, and at all your badness, vileness, sin, guilt, and misery, look up and hope in God. Has he not given us a thousand encouragements to do so? See his tender pity and compassion for the poor and needy. See what rivers of mercy, grace, and love are in him. See us all seeing eye ever watching over you and knowing the worst of your case and all your misgivings. View his all-powerful hand ever ready to be stretched out on your behalf. And now, my soul, when you have taken this view of God by faith, his manifesting himself in his dear son, hope in him. Thirdly, David's confident expectation for 
therefore I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. De sudden turns, as we may call them, from the lowest despondency to the highest confidence, from the depths of disquietude to the fullest assurance, are very frequent in the Psalms, and perhaps the very history of David's life, with sudden and marked alternations of adversity and prosperity and providence may help to account for a similar experience and grace. But be it so or not, the fact is plain that a distinguishing feature in David's experience was the sudden changes which came over his soul. But you will observe that in his confidence, he is rather looking forward to the future than enjoying it at the present. And is not this a very nature of hope? Hope that is seen, says the apostle, is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? Though not yet fully blessed or delivered, he therefore looked forward in faith and hope to the time when he should be so, and be enabled to praise God. He could not do it then, but he firmly believed the time was coming when he both could and would. But observe also the expression, who is the health of my countenance. By this we may understand the restoration of a soul to the enjoyment of God's manifested favor and presence, which always communicates such happiness and peace as proclaims itself by the very countenance itself. Disease is always marked in a man's countenance. No man can have organic or even ordinary disease without his face showing it to the experienced eye, and even often discovering the very nature of the complaint itself. How well you look, how ill you look. These common expressions show how health and sickness manifest themselves in a man's countenance, even to ordinary observation. When God is pleased and to drop his word with power into a man's heart and restore his soul so as to enable him to bless and praise his holy name. God becomes the health of his countenance. The former sickliness of his soul manifested itself in his very face. He could not smile, and sometimes could hardly lift up his head. Feeling himself such a guilty wretch, it seemed to him as if everybody could read his sins in his countenance, full of doubt and fear. He was often scarcely able to look up before God and man, and his heavy eye and drooping eyelid betrayed the feelings of his soul. We see how even natural joy bespeaks itself in the face, how it gives freshness and animation to the cheek and luster to the eye. But how much more is this true of spiritual joy, for as that gives inward health a soul, it manifests itself in a man's natural countenance and his happiness overflows, as it were, into his eyes and features and face. But we may take the words as applicable to a man's spiritual countenance. For your soul, like your body, has its disease that casts a sickly hue over its face. Sometimes your soul is very sick, languid and feeble, unable to take any exercise almost loathing food and much deprived of rest. Now this will soon begin to tell upon your soul's countenance. Spiritual eyes can read it in your appearance. Spiritual ears hear it in your prayers and lamentations. Spiritual hearts can feel it and sympathize with you. 
is knowing themselves what it is to be similarly afflicted, and you yourselves has known so intimately what is the manner with your own soul, need no one to tell you that it is in a sickly state, that you are not as you were in times past, full of life and vigor in the things of God, but have gone into a languishing, unhealthy condition. Now this casts you down and makes you disturbed. But by and by, when a healing word comes, it removes this sickness out of your soul. It brings, as the Lord promises, health and cure, and the soul once more begins to walk with life and vigor in the ways of God. Being thus renewed and revived, it reads and understands the word of God with more life and feeling, hears it with more savor, unction, and power, knows more sweet access to the throne of grace and enjoys the things of God more experimentally and believingly. It is in this way that God is the health of our countenance, for it is his grace and his blessing that gives health to the sickly soul. He therefore said of himself, I am the Lord who heals you. And David well knew this when he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. A healthy soul is a greater blessing than a healthy body. Perhaps the greatest of all temporal troubles is an unhealthy body, and the worst of all spiritual troubles is an unhealthy soul. And conversely, the greatest of temporal mercies is a healthy body, and the greatest of spiritual mercies is a healthy soul. And then comes those few and simple words which crown them all. And my God, what when you have been so cast down, when so disturbed, when so ready to abandon all hope, what will you ever be able to say? My God? Yes, for he is your God when you're cast down and disturbed. Your God when you can scarcely feel any persuasion of interest in his love. Your God and all the changing things through which you have passed, and your God so as never to leave or forsake you for his name's sake. How this sums up everything. My God, for he is your God. All he has and all he is is yours. Now what mercies these are to embrace, and what blessings these are to enjoy, may I not well say. What is all that the earth calls good and great compared with being able to believe that God is your God, your God in life, your God in death, your God in time, and your God in eternity? Well, this is all religion that will do to live and die by. For if you only have God for the health of your countenance, and the Holy Spirit seals at home with power upon your heart, have you not every reason to praise God, even now, for every dispensation of his providence and grace, and every ground of confident expectation that you will forever bless his name, when time itself shall be no more?